Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the show is the former play-by-play man of the Sonoma Stompers, Tim Livingston. He's going to talk about his recent trip slash vacation to South Korea and Japan and the stuff he got up to while he was there, including video games, baseball, and wrestling. Then we're going to talk about some of his baseball work from the Dunedin Blue Jays to being the play-by-play man of the Sonoma Stompers and some of the more progressive things that that baseball team has done in the couple years it's been in existence. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Our guest today just got back from a trip with plenty of pop culture tangents, so I wanted to get him on the show to talk all about it and some of the other things that he's done. So please welcome the former play-by-play man of the Sonoma Stompers, Tim Livingston. And we will we will get to plenty of stuff about the Stompers eventually, but how's it going? Good, Mark. How are you doing, man? I am good. Uh, like I said, you just got back from what sounded like a really cool and amazing trip to uh, to Asia. So why don't you start us off, and we'll we'll, you, we'll uh, talk about all the stuff that happened while you were there. Yeah, so I'm currently in grad school at St. Mary's in in California in Moraga, which is in the East Bay. So it's about 20 minutes outside of Oakland, up on top of a hill. They call it the hill, and uh, I'm in the business analytics program there. And the business uh, school has a professional MBA program where they have a requirement where you have to take an international trip. Uh, but you have multiple places you can go to. And so what happens is most of the guys in the program, they can't go on the same trip. And so the seats open up for a trip to South Korea and uh, to Seoul. And uh, I would I uh, saw that there was a couple of open spots and that jumped all over the chance because uh, at the time and still there, he's about to leave. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine who's teaching English in South Korea. But I also realized that um, uh, the manager for the Sonoma Stompers, Takashi Miyoshi, lived in Japan. I'd always wanted to go to Japan. And so I decided to craft this big trip around this uh, program in in South Korea with St. Mary's. And so I did three weeks, two weeks in South Korea and one week in Japan. And, uh, you know, started in South Korea. I flew into Seoul and then went to Daegu, which is about two hours by train south of Seoul. Stayed with my friend there a couple of days, kind of got acquainted with the Korean culture, then came back to Seoul for a week and did the program there. But Japan was kind of the trip. That was, you know, something, as, as you know, as a, as a fellow wrestling guy, you know, when you want to try and go to Japan, baseball, too, obviously, it's like, there's all these great things about pop culture, like you talked about, that really resonated with me. And so that was the cherry on top of this trip. And, man, it, it, the week there, it was something that it, it, it's it's a place, Tokyo, that you could spend years at and not do everything you want to do. But I will say that in a week, I got to do a lot of things that I was very happy with. And, uh, you know, just uh, just one of those trips that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Yeah, I was I was supposed to go... Oh God! It's like 15 years ago now. I was going mm-hmm. to go. I was going to go on one of those Mayfield tours, okay. and I, which I think like would have been like during Golden Week. And as it just happened that like in March or April, 
it's like I got a different job and I moved from like Delaware down to Virginia. So it mm-hmm. was the kind of thing where I kind of had to can't one. I didn't, I couldn't, didn't think I could go on that trip because that's when like I would have been moving. And two, it's like, I kind of needed the move, the money to move and all that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. because it, it was I think like three or four grand or something like that for the like right. week or whatever, so I was like I really wanted to go and I knew it was probably like my best chance to go, but you know it's like real life said I couldn't go. So it's yes, it's the kind of thing where it's like when you're like a longtime wrestling fan and like and you've been reading the Observer forever and like you read all those trips that like Dave and those guys used to take right. and seeing you know going to the Egg Dome or Corkin and all those other kind of places. It's like, oh, that's, you know, I've always wanted to go. And it's like, you know, I've gotten to go see Lucha in, in Tijuana. I haven't gone to like Arena Mexico or anything. So I've at least seen Lucha in Mexico right. and like getting, you know, and I've seen Japanese country companies run in the United States. It's like, you know, I saw Dragon Gate before they were Dragon Gate USA when they did that one show in Los Angeles it's like I went out to that because I was like I'm never going to get to see Dragon Gate little did I know they would you know like open an American office a couple years later right but I'm like did you go to the battle arts show that was out your way there was a battle arts show that ran I think North Carolina or something like that I can't remember it was it was a few years back I'd have to look into it but I, I thought I remember battle arts or a battle arts Battle Arts titled show running out on the East Coast a few years back. I, no, I probably wouldn't have gone to that because that's not my thing. Got it. So, but it was like when when like they ran out there and it was like, you know, am I going to get the chance? Well, one, the only reason I really wanted to go is because because Stoker Ishikawa was on the card, and I'm like, I'm never going to get to see him again. And then it was like, you know, I think Shima was still on the card. I don't know if, um. Like if Magnum Tokyo was on the card, but it was like all the Dragon Gate guys, and I was like, right. And then you know Stoker ended up wrestling. Oh crap! Who did he, he wrestled? Uh, oh, I forget, isn't it? But it was like it was like this really weird sort of like mismatch. Oh, he wrestled Necro Butcher. Oh jeez. So like it was the kind of thing where they started the match, and it's sort of like I guess sort of typical Stoker thing. Like Necro won in like three seconds. You know, like, Stoker, like, ran into him and fell down and got pinned, and then they started to match, and then they had, like, a 10-minute comedy match or whatever. But that was, you know, really cool, and that was also, like, the first time, like, I had actually, like, been in L.A. proper, so it was, like, when I was, because it was, I think it was in the summer, so it's, like, I, like, went to one Dodger game, and I went to see the either the Galaxy or Chivas play in the Home Depot Center, and I went out and I saw... I was friends with the guys that used to do World Soccer Daily, so I went to see them in the studio. And so, like, it was, like, a big trip, but it was like, yeah, but, again, seeing Japanese guys in America isn't the same as going, yeah. to, going to Japan. So, um, I guess the first question would be is, so you were in Korea for two weeks, but right. before we get to the fun stuff, was it kind of, was it tense while you were there, given all the stuff that's going on? Like, could could you feel it? Well, Daegu is kind of one of the more conservative cities, uh, Seoul being the met- you know the metropolis it is. It's it's a very vibrant, liberal, more liberal-leaning city. Conservative, more Daegu is where I started the trip. Um, there's a big 
uh, base there, and my friend actually stayed in an apartment complex right there next to, to the airport and, and the base, which uh, shares the same airstrip. So we would hear planes flying overhead. And um, I think what I found out, uh, interestingly enough, was South Korea was just like, yeah, we know it's there. But a lot of people who are aware, you know, that would talk about it, they're like, yeah, but at the same time, we understand that that's, you know, not the entirety of what North Koreans believe and want the want want for their country. And so they still have this idea of unification. When I went to the DMZ uh, towards the end of my trip, it was right when things started to get a bit more chippy than usual. And so I was a little bit uh, I was a little bit uh, on edge, but. Uh, you know they are are on in one of those situations there where I think there's a just a heightened sense of security there, and so they're you know at the DMZ at least. But uh, but yeah, I mean I think people in in South Korea are just like look, we just you know there's this part of our history that wants to connect South Korea and North Korea again after you know 60 years of being separate. You know we we still want this for our people. We we want to be unified. Uh, there's obviously a lot of with it being in between Japan and China and just south of Russia. There's very interesting piece of geography there. And uh, and so I, I'm I think just especially in the next couple of years with the new president about to be elected in South Korea, there's going to be some interesting things. But I didn't really get a sense that there was dread or fear. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that, you know, the Korean culture is very matter of fact. They don't really try and blow things out of proportion. In fact, it was the media that helped bring down President Park in the first place. So, you know, I, I feel that I feel that it's just it's just yeah, we know it's there, but uh, they just live their lives and knowing that's that it's uh, it's happening. Okay, so that's the serious stuff we'll out of the way. So, right. South Korea, like Japan, I know South Korea is very sort of like game crazy, and I know that you're yes. like a big gamer guy. So. What kind of like weird video game stuff did you do in Korea before we get to all the stuff in Japan? Yeah, so the couple of things. First off, the esports culture in in South Korea is its own industry. Like it's one of the burgeoning economic parts of South Korean uh, uh, culture, and it's really started to become something in the last couple of years. Overwatch is one of the biggest games. Uh, if not the biggest game, it's between that and StarCraft, really, although the StarCraft re-release that comes out this summer is probably going to challenge it. People are still playing StarCraft 2 on, on the regular. I mean, the gaming culture over there, there's it's kind of threefold. There is the competitive gaming. I did do some VR gaming over there, which was very interesting. Um, uh, some of it was headset based. The others were kind of augmented reality type, uh, games, which were, which were very interesting, like driving in a car during a, a, a like a, a dirt rally race and, uh, flying in, in, uh, airplanes and jets and stuff like that. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, but you know, as far as like video arcades and stuff like that, there are two things. There were actual arcades, which you could, if you're in Seoul for sure, you could walk around and see arcades and play games and stuff like that. But the other thing was, um, the claw machine games, which uh, popped up a couple of years ago and have just really become really popular. When I was walking around during the evening times and saw kids out and about, a lot of them were sitting around claw machine games with guys trying to win their girlfriend's prizes and stuff like that. And a lot of people in the in the group I went with from school were trying to win stuff. I tried to win something. I actually did win one for a friend of mine. So. You know, it's really interesting, the gaming culture in South Korea, for sure. It's uh, very, in, you know, very uh, in-depth 
in uh, specific games, like I said, Overwatch and StarCraft. But now, because they have an industry behind it, especially from an esports perspective, I can only see that growing and, and eventually reaching out to other places, you know, the fighting games, uh, you know, your Dotas and all that stuff uh, down the line. Cool. And while you were in Korea, you also got to go see a baseball game. I think people here now know, you know, we've had enough, I guess, Korean imports to Major League Baseball that we know that, you know, that it's big. It's You know, it's probably not quite the level of Japan yet. I think I heard someone discussing, they were discussing Eric Thames on the radio, yeah. and they were saying that Korean baseball is probably between double A and triple A, maybe in quality, whereas, you know, the Japan leagues are triple, you know, like 4A. So, right. uh, so you got to see a game. So what was the experience like of going to a game in, in Korea? Yeah, I mean, Korea is is it's a, just a different animal altogether when it comes to baseball. I went with a writer, Sung Min Kim, who's very uh, popular amongst uh, baseball circles, especially on the analytics side. Um, he's had a couple of really neat stories. In fact, he wrote the Deadspin KBO article a couple of weeks back. If you guys haven't read that yet, definitely read that. It's really kind of a good primer to kind of get you an idea of what the KBO is like. The games are just nine innings of constant interaction with fans, just cheering and songs. Uh, it's really a, just a really interesting uh, dynamic compared to what you would see here in the States. The States is more reactionary, right? You see something happen, then you uh, then you cheer. Really, it's you cheer in Korea something happens, you cheer louder. That's that's how it really works there. And the same in Japan, although Japan has more fervor. They have they have larger stadiums, larger crowds. They as you said, it's a bit more established. Um you know, and but I saw you know, baseball there that is about double A level, maybe a little bit higher, and uh, that that very offensively oriented games, which is fun. You know, you get to see shootouts. I saw a ten to seven game, I saw a thirteen to ten game. You, you see some scores, so uh, it was fun though, and uh, the beer was cheap, food was good, very different food you can get there. There's like a convenience store, so like if you think about going to a 7-Eleven or like a CVS to get snacks or something like that, they have one of those in the stadium, so it's not just hot dogs and, and, and beer and stuff like that. You get your fried chicken, you get your chips, you get your different you know sports drinks and stuff like that too, so – uh, I really like the atmosphere of a, of a Korean baseball game, and I, I, you know, of course, Japan. We'll get to that, and I'll, I'll speak more specifically about that. But uh, man, just just really one of my favorite things about the trip. Something I was very much looking forward to meeting Sungmin and and having an idea of what Korean baseball is like. And it just it overperformed for me, to be perfectly honest. It was more than I thought. So I'm guessing with all those runs, you must have seen plenty of bat flips. No, no bat flips. I was looking for them. Um, it wasn't, I mean, if they were, they were more, a little more subtle. Uh, unfortunately, nothing, uh, nothing as crazy as, uh, Jehu Huang or, or anything of the, the, the guys who really made them big time last year. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was more subtle. It was more like a release as opposed to like a true on, like, you know, big time bat flip, like your, your tenth amount to, or your, you tend to see in some of the KBO highlights. Was there, was there anything else in Korea that really stood out like sort of pop culture wise, maybe? So it was, uh, I'm trying to think, I think in, in South Korea also, it was 
there's a couple of things. So first is PC bongs. And, and I don't know how familiar some of the guys listening to the show might think about when it comes to PC bongs. But they're basically um, – back in the old days, used to be internet cafes. But now, since the internet is everywhere, they've turned into hubs for people to go and play games. So if you have a PC license for like a uh, like Overwatch or Dota or LOL or whatever you're playing, you can actually take that license, go to a PC bong where they have very good equipment all across the board, go with a bunch of friends, have food, have drinks, and just play there. They'll do competitions. So, I mean, all kinds of really cool stuff there. Um, I tried that once. It was a bit tough to get used to. I'm sure if I went back again and I wasn't uh, as inebriated, I think I'd be a little bit better off. But uh, that was interesting. Um, Food-wise, oh, man, I, I think I was overwhelmed by the food choices. The The street food there was incredible. You did have your American fast food change. You hear about KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut and McDonald's and Burger King, all those. Yes, they're all over there. I did have Taco Bell. Again, I was inebriated. I should not have had Taco Bell. Uh, they do have Dunkin' Donuts. Very cool. Uh, but there's also, you know, really oddly, there's like this, like things in America that you don't think are a big deal are a big deal there. They have a really nice Outback Steakhouse in Gangnam that I saw, which was just blew my mind. I couldn't believe that. They have a, uh, a Shake Shack in Gangnam, which – Blew my mind because I realized right then and there, someone who lives in the Bay Area, I was closer to a Shake Shack in South Korea than I was in my own home. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, so they've really done an interesting way of appropriating American pop culture, especially from a food perspective, and and really made it a part of uh, some of the the bigger areas in uh, in in Seoul. And I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't truly Americanized. It was kind of like their interpretation of American fast food. But uh, nonetheless, it was it was pretty interesting to see. So I think the food more than anything else uh, and just the vibrancy, just completely different environment night. The neon lights come out. You see it around every corner. Uh, just just it was alive. You felt like you were in a living organism when you were there in Seoul. And it really was it was a, a place that uh I actually would like to go back to, even though as far as my pop culture loves, it's more in, in Japan than it was in, in South Korea. I was going to say, if Seoul is sort of that sort of a living orgasm, then Tokyo is probably, what, like a million times even more than that? Yeah, and I didn't see the nightlife in Tokyo too much. I saw it a few nights, uh, but man, I just... One thing about Tokyo is that because it's so large, and, and you know, and we'll, I'll, I guess this probably isn't the, the worst time to segue right into it since I've finished off Souls. So Tokyo is is very much built like your mega city, but it's it's more spread out. So Seoul is twenty twenty five million people, but it's a compact city. You don't have a lot of big roads. You have some, but not a lot. Whereas Tokyo is dominated by these really large thoroughfares, um, really tall buildings, even taller than you would see in Seoul. And so, yeah, when it's nighttime there, you know, Seoul is more at eye level with you when it comes to the uh, the bright lights and stuff like that. Whereas Tokyo, you look up and you're almost like disorienting. 
how incredible like the bathing of those neon lights hit you. Uh, and so that was what was interesting to me about it was the fact that when you were out in Tokyo, you had this – it was almost like just these different colored beams of moonlight hitting you, whereas in Seoul – you felt like you were more at ground level with all the lighting because, you know, it's only a couple of stories high on a building, but the signs were bright and you saw them at ground level, you know. So uh, Tokyo had areas like that, but not nearly as crazy as sold it. And like you said, you were only there a week. But, yeah, Tokyo, you could probably, you know, spend a month and not yeah. get to like a tenth of the kind of stuff that you would want to do. Right. Yeah, it's it's a city that you you really it's hard to put into uh, it's really hard to kind of put a value on how much time you would really need to spend there because it just seems and that's happened with me towards the end of the trip. And it happened in Seoul, too, where you would discover something and you're just like, ah, man, I wish I had more time for that. And, yeah, that it just it's a cliche almost, but it totally happened. And uh, I felt now uh, that because of the fact that. At the time, I was still immersed. Yeah, I think I was more like, oh, that, no, that's okay. I did a lot. I did a lot. But you're, you're totally right. Like, give me six months, and I still think I'd be barely scratching the surface of, of what I want to do from in Tokyo, for sure. Well, I think also I think part of the thing with Tokyo is that, like, whatever your niche is, I think right. you could you could be lost in there forever. And if you're somebody that has multiple interests – you know, mm-hmm. it would just be like I'm sure you could. I mean, like like we were saying, like you know, you're a gaming guy. You could have spent an entire week, probably just you know, in that part of town, mm-hmm. going from like store to store or like arcade to arcade, and still wouldn't touch everything, let alone everything else that you wanted to do. Yeah. So one thing also is actually I'm I'm glad you brought this up. Is Seoul is it has its areas, so there's the big areas that people know in Seoul are Gangnam, obviously Gangnam style, right? That's that's the, it came up in the 70s and 80s and kind of became the the metropolitan hub, the newer version of Seoul. There's Itaewon, which is kind of your more classical nightlife type of area in Seoul. I stayed in Insadong, which is kind of an older area of town that has that's next to Gyeongbok Temple, which is the oldest temple in in Seoul and where the Imperial Palace was for a while. And so there were areas in Seoul that were very um, homogenous. You could go to similar areas and be like, oh, yeah, no, this is like this area in Seoul or this this area in Seoul. But Tokyo, they are much more compartmentalized. So Akihabara, the area that has all the nerd culture you can think of, video games, anime, electronics, it's all in this condensed area. And I was there twice and I felt, you know, I went for a few hours each time and I just like, first thing, I'm glad I'm poor because if I had gone with money, I would have spent it all. Second, you you really don't get an idea for how deep you can go into that. There were stores there with retro games that I was just in awe of looking around because they had literally – think of any video game that you had ever wanted to play. And you could find it within two block radius in Ikea Barra. And I mean, I mean any game. Like I went to a store that sold, um, arcade, uh, arcade chips, like the, the, the arcade slots where if you wanted to build a cabinet and you want to slot in games, they were available to buy. I mean, this was just, it was overwhelming. And you do. There are areas in Tokyo that if you want to see your interest, whether it's that, 
Um, if you wanted to go, you know, your fashion spots, you had Shibuya, which was just outstanding. Uh, you had your um, the Harajuku area, of course, which everybody talks about when it comes to fashion, which was just nuts when I went there in the middle of the day, three o'clock, and it was just packed just with people. I mean, you could you totally get lost there, and it's in it's just in areas that. You go there and you realize, oh, I want to do all these other things. And then you leave and you're like, oh, man, I could have spent my entire day there. Tokyo is exactly like that. Because it, it's funny, I think, from like sort of an American perspective, sometimes it's like you see stuff in pop culture, you know, especially like certain kinds of anime. And you're like, oh, well, this is just them sort of taking the way it is and exaggerating it. And then you're like, no, no, it really is not even an exaggeration. You know, just how, you know, insane it can be, you know, in mm -hmm. certain in certain places. And then, you know, even when you, you know, you look at, I don't know, yeah, I guess I sort of think of sort of like, you know, post-apoc, you know, if you look like Akira and stuff like that, that even in like the 80s, you know, it was so, you know, over the top and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you move closer and even like when you see american stuff there you know it's like you look at like the the tokyo section of kill of the first kill bill mm -hmm. you know and you get just like the tiniest little sliver of like one what it's like there and right. i guess and i guess lost in translation i guess is probably like the best example that like your average person would probably know of just like what it can be like to be in the middle of that city yeah, and so I stayed with with Yoshi. He lives in Subudai, which is if you guys know out uh, out there, it's west of of, of uh, Tokyo. It's west of Shinjuku Station, and so I was actually staying in the country, and that was interesting to go every day from the country into town, whether it's Tokyo or Yokohama, and, and really get that dichotomy. A camp, I think, at Zama. Uh, yeah, Camp Zama, the U.S. Army base is where Sobodaya is. So if you guys kind of want to get an idea of where it was on the map. But, um, yeah, you really don't get an idea of just how diverse Tokyo can be until you travel around it. And I think that's what I appreciated most of all. You know, Seoul did does a pretty good job of highlighting certain areas. But the one thing I'll say about Tokyo is a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's had so much longer uh, it hasn't really been built up from scratch almost in a lot of ways that Seoul has had. It basically has sat for so long that building around it and incorporating the areas around Tokyo into this just giantly growing mass of humanity, you really get these interesting little pockets throughout the city. And there are times where if you do watch it in pop culture, you're like, oh, that's Tokyo? And yeah, it would be different every time. And a lot of that, I think, speaks to just how much Tokyo – is compartmentalized in those areas where you can go to your video game area, you can go to your artsy area, your fashion area, and they do a good job of it. And of course, then there's the baseball, which right. you said, like you said, you went to you went to games in Korea, and then you went to games in Japan. And I guess you know we've had a sprinkling of like uh, access to Korean baseball every so often. It's like certainly it's been more in the last you know, 20 years since there have been more players come over and, you know, whether it's Ichiro or Dice K or, or Matsui, whoever. 
so we're sort of more familiar. And then I guess you know, like there's been occasional sort of forays. I remember during the baseball strike, I think I think Fox maybe like showed a couple games of the Japan series, and then mm-hmm. and of course now since everything's on the internet, you can you know I know I've certainly watched like streams of games from there every so often and but i but probably like like we were saying it's doesn't it's not the same until you're there so how was it actually live and in person well it was the korean experience uh taken up a notch so bigger stadiums better competition not as much offense it felt more because it's closer to major league level it was more of like a national league style game better pitching that type of stuff um a lot of small ball, whereas Korea has really tried to become the mashing, you know, area. Japan, while it is evolving, has been more of a small ball environment. Uh, that being said, you know, very similar food, beer everywhere. Uh, but is the the two things that really set it apart? They they do the songs, they do the cheering. Each player has their own song, like in Korea. But the lucky seven inning, which I'm sure if people have seen a Japan a Japanese baseball game, know. That's where each team gets a balloon for their half inning, and then they blow it up, and then a song plays, and then at the end they release it up into the air. And, of course, when the home team's turn during the traditional seventh inning stretch uh, happens, it's just this incredible visual of these balloons, 30,000, 40,000 of them going off at once into the air. Uh, to show that they're, you know, they're hoping that it brings their team good luck the last couple of innings. And then if the home team does win, they do uh, some type of celebration in their own way. I went to a Yokohama Bay Sox game. They won in the 10th inning on a walk-off fielder's choice, very Japanese. But they had this incredible fireworks display after the game. And they do that after every home win. They win at home. They do a giant fireworks uh, display, and that's how they celebrate wins in Tokyo, uh, in, or in baseball, I should say, in Japan. It was uh, it was just amazing to think that that would happen on a regular basis. Uh, I went with Kaz Yamazaki, who's a very prominent Japanese uh, baseball uh, analyst over there, and he's like, "Yeah, the Stompers, they need to incorporate some of this stuff." And it's like, I wish I had some of these budgets so that we could incorporate some of this stuff. Uh, but it was it was just a completely incredible experience. Uh, I went to to uh, two stadiums. I went to Yokohama, and then I went up to uh, to Chiba for the Chiba Lotte Marines game. That's on the that's on the ocean side up there. A beautiful open air stadium. Very windy that day. Uh, wind was blowing in at about 20 miles an hour. It was not fun. Uh, stifled offense pretty badly. But uh, you know it was very very cool experience and that also that game the the second game in chiba i went to i, I met with a journalist there who had interviewed uh takashi miyoshi and yoshi had told him about me and i actually got a chance to talk with him a little bit about you know how the stompers have incorporated saber metrics and and what i've done for the team and and things like that so uh, it was just a very unique very very uh memorable experience and to be on the field during bp is always fun and to see uh see how the Japanese guys do their, their, their BP and, and how it's a little bit different from American uh, style BP, which is just kind of more showcasey. You can see more drills and stuff going on during BP in, in Japanese baseball. 
uh, it was still fun. It was it was just a blast, and I hope I do get a chance to go back and do some more. I, I'm guessing I will. I was gonna say I think that's something that people may have seen, you know, like in like the couple, you know, I I haven't seen it in such a long time, but I know like Mr. Baseball, there's certainly a right. lot of that. They play up the culture clash, mm-hmm. and you know the sort of I guess you could almost say stereotypical. You know, the regimented way that Japanese baseball was and maybe still is. And, you know, that some Americans have flourished over there and some Americans have floundered over there just because they haven't been able to, like, adapt to the culture. Right. And so what's interesting about that is I, I got a, a, I've always loved Mr. Baseball. I thought it was a, a painfully underrated movie. I think a lot of it just has to fact to do it is it's talking about Japanese baseball and it's, uh, it, it had to have more of a love story to it, I think, with Tom Selleck at the helm. The baseball was fun, but it was a major part of it, as as much as some, maybe some other baseball movies like Major League. But I will say this, like, it, I realized with the Lucky Seven and the food, all that stuff, like, that was really cool to me. Not, didn't see any older infields, although the regimented part I saw, I, I one of the things I actually did do was I went to a high school baseball practice, which was very interesting. It was three hours long. The The, the manager, his name is Fuyoshi Yi. He's a great guy. Uh, Fuyoshi Lee, sorry. Great guy, Korean-Japanese, uh, uh, or Japanese-Korean, I guess you would call it over there. He was the manager, and he was very excited to meet me and kind of see what I thought of his practice. And I told him exactly what you said. It's regimented. I thought that the fundamentals were extremely sound. But they, when they made small mistakes, I think you saw them kind of beat themselves up. And in that culture, especially at the high school level, they are very much so taught to respect their, their elders, and they're taught to respect the game. And I was there, and I got treated like I was like a superstar. Like it was incredible. They were very respected, you know, respectful to me. They wanted to hear everything I had to say when it came to American baseball. And so the culture over there, like I think what people think about when it comes to Japanese baseball culture, they think of that's probably more prominent in high school uh, at that level. At the higher level of Japanese baseball, I think it's becoming a bit more Americanized. But at the same time, they are still trying to hold fast with the Japanese values that helped them get there in the first place. So it's a very interesting dichotomy. And of course – Japanese high school baseball is super, super. I get. I I've heard people say it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, like March Madness, or maybe like how if depending on where you're from, like the way the Indiana high school basketball tournament is that it's like the be all and end all, but that the you know Japanese high school baseball is like super, super important. Yeah, and so the Koshien is the biggest tournament in high school baseball in Japan. It starts in the summer, but they basically have it's it's a lot like high school uh, sports here. They have a local, then they have the regional, and the and the sectional is where you get to the Koshien. And there's 47 prefectures, and the best teams that win the regionals, the prefecture tournaments, they get to go to the Koshien. Um, and obviously, a lot has been made about the pitch counts for pitchers in the Koshien. Daisuke Matsuzaka famously pitched 18 innings in a in a in a in a coaching game, almost 200. Came back and pitched the next day. Like that type of 
of uh, kind of legendary, almost mythical status around the tournament, uh, I think overshadows the fact that it's the most popular sporting event in the entire country. Uh, there are 11, 12,000 seat stadiums where these Koshian games are played and they're filled up every game. That is how incredible this uh, this tournament is. And uh, I they are just kind of starting the local stuff, it, you know, last four or five months. But it is it's one of those times where you do kind of wish you could have been there in the summer to see it. Because I think that is something completely unique, more so than going to a Japanese big league game. It's just completely something that you will never get to see anywhere else other than Japan. And so that's still on my bucket list. If I get to go back in August, I want to go to a Koshian game. Uh, but, uh, I, I, yeah, it's it's much more prominent at the high school level, this idea of the Japanese respect for the game and such, than I think it is at the, the higher levels now. Cool. And, of course... You did go to a bunch of wrestling. Um, yeah. I know you hit a bunch of sort of, uh, like you said, the bucket list things that you want to do when you right. go when you go there. So why don't you uh, talk about which shows you got to go to and and which restaurants you got to go to that everyone will certainly know. Yeah, about. right. So the idea here was I wanted to try and go to the Sakura Genesis New Japan pay-per-view on April 9th, it was the day I arrived in Tokyo. Unfortunately, I landed in Narita Airport at 3.30, and the show started back in Tokyo at 4. And so Narita's about an hour, hour and a half outside of town. And so once I got through customs and such, and I even got to, the, to, to Sumo Hall, I would have been screwed. I would not have been able to get there on time. So I unfortunately couldn't go to the show, but... Uh, the Champion Carnival, All Japan's uh, yearly tournament, was beginning while I was there, and it was at Karakin. I had to go. And so that was the ticket I got. And so I basically told myself, okay, so what do I want to do wrestling-oriented? Well, one of the things, and I want to give the hat tip here to Kasha Sono. I don't know if he's going to listen to this or not or if, if uh, someone can reach out to him. But a couple of weeks ago, while I was in Korea, he posted a picture of him shaking Toshiaki Kawada's hand. And it was this great. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, you know, I, I heard about his ramen restaurant and stuff like that. Then I realized as I was planning my trip, that's where he met him. He didn't meet him at a wrestling show. He went to Kawada's ramen restaurant and met him there. And so I was like, okay, well, I wanted to go to his ramen restaurant in the first place. I don't know if I'll get to meet him, but I definitely want to go there. So to kind of give you an idea, Kawada's restaurant, is actually somewhat close to the Ribera Steakhouse location. So Ribera is in southwest Tokyo, and uh, and Kawada's restaurant is about, I'd say, 15 minutes or so by car northwest of both Ribera's. It kind of makes a triangle area. But it's also off the train line that I took every day from Subodai down to Shinjuku. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to stop off there. And so I did that before my first Japanese baseball game, I was the only foreigner in the restaurant. I walk in. Kawada is making lunch for everybody right there through the kitchen window. I think he understood I'm the only non-Japanese person in the room. He made the, everybody's lunch. I got it. I uh, You had to go over to uh, a ramen. It was a kind of a selection thing. You press the button. You get the ticket. And his wife is the one running out the, the, the orders to him. And so she gave it to him. And. 
Um, I was looking around. It's very small, about 20 seats or so. And they had the TV going and stuff. You saw his sake bottles. I don't know if anybody knows this, but he has a brand of Dangerous K Sake that uh, he has uh, there. And he had a shirt and, and a couple other things and memorabilia. So um, I finished my lunch. I say, hey, uh, you know, I've been watching whether legally or illegally, however you want to say, uh, Kawada's matches for years. He's my favorite Japanese wrestler. I want to buy a shirt. I want to buy a bottle of sake. And so I asked his wife, I want to get a shirt, want to get a bottle of sake. And as I'm paying for it, uh, she's folding it up and about to put away. And she asked me in broken English, uh, have signed. And I, Mark, I, I wish you could have seen my face. I wish I could have seen my <laughs> own face. I was like, yeah, totally. And then it realized like, oh, my God, I could ask him for a photo. And so he comes out. He's kind of smiles the way you would think Toshiaki Kawada would smile. Um, and then he signed. He asked what the date is. And then I asked, can I take a picture? He's like, yes, yes. And so we stand over, and then I realize as we're standing there, it's in front of the entrance to the kitchen, which is where Hero was, was standing next to him. And uh, I'm just standing there. I'm smiling. And then he's like, oh. And he extends his hand out to, to do a handshake. I was like, oh, okay. And so I shake his hand, and I get a couple pictures taken. And uh, you saw the photo that's up there now. But uh, that blew my mind. Like, I hadn't even gotten to the wrestling part yet. Like, I was just like – I, I basically I could be done. I have a shirt signed by Toshiaki Kawada and I got my picture taken with them. It's like that's a better mark pick than I've taken with any wrestlers here in the United States. And I got to do that in Japan. Like I, I, I it was just it was just mind blowing. So um, that was Friday. Sunday, I decided, you know, I'm going to Karakin, but I didn't get a chance to go to Budokan. I didn't get a chance to see uh, Sumo Hall. And so I did that. I went to the Budokan, which is in Chiyoda. So if you don't know what Chiyoda is, it's where the Imperial Palace is in the middle of Tokyo. And so it's a beautiful area. The cherry blossoms are out in full force. And the Budokan, which was built for the Tokyo Games in 64 for the judo competition, it's housed right there. Of course, you hear live at Budokan for rock and roll guys. The Beatles played there, and then everybody started playing there after the Beatles went. They still play there. In fact, I saw, I think, Santana's playing there this week. Um, and so it was right there in the middle. That's where all the All Japan shows and the Pro Wrestling Noah shows were played uh, through the, the you know throughout the years. Uh, there hasn't been a show there in about Five years, I think it was Kobashi's last show. His retirement show was the last one there, just because it's it, it's very expensive to rent it out there as opposed to Sumo Hall or, or Karakin. So then I go from there to uh, Sumo Hall, which is right next to the National Sumo Museum, which was incredible. Uh, it was gated off. You couldn't really see too much of it. It was closed down for the day because there wasn't any events going on, and so I just kind of peeked in over the bars and saw it. And then... I go from there to Tokyo uh, Dome City, which has the Tokyo Dome, and then Karakin is in the office building uh, where the Tokyo Dome offices are held, right? And so you take the elevator up to the fifth floor. Yes, it's like a studio. You're basically in this giant studio, and you uh, you know you, you go up there, and it's pretty packed. And you uh, you come out and you get a chance to walk through the merchandise section first before you kind of circle back around and into the arena area where you have your concessions and you get to see some of the cool displays where, you know, there's not just wrestling there, but boxing and kickboxing and, and martial arts competitions have been there. But it's still the pro wrestling mecca. So you had all Japan stuff out, New Japan stuff out, posters all over the place. 
And then you go in, and if you've seen a professional wrestling match at Croc and Hall, it's exactly what you think it is. It's a basic studio. There's bleachers on one side across from the hard camera. There's seats, uh, stadium seating on the on the, the camera side. There's the balconies up top. And it was all Japan's show. And, uh, you know, phew, I, I mean, it was surreal. I think it was kind of numbing to think that I was at Croc and Hall. And seeing a show there, I think. But what was really cool was I'm kind of more of a silent observer. I only get excited when I do commentary for Phoenix Pro Wrestling, the indie I work for out here. But there I got excited. Like I was totally into everything. I was chanting along. You know, I, I, Jun Akiyama was on the card. Osama Nishimura was on the card. Takawa Mori was on the card. Dory Funk Jr., his old ass, nearly 80 years old, he was on the card whipping that freaking whip. Uh, I mean, I could probably go into more specifics and I, and I probably should, but, um, I wanted to give a kind of a break here. That's kind of like when I got to Karakin, that's when it kind of hit home. It's like, that's, this is something that I've been wanting to do for almost, you know, two decades now. And, uh, you know, to see a show there and be a part of the atmosphere, it is as crazy. It has as vibrant as people have said Karakin is, it's full of diehards. You saw shirts everywhere. And uh, just just what a what a freaking day. What you know, and that it, that's only halfway through. Like, I really could. I could go on about this for a long time, but at least wanted to give a break to, to see if you had anything before I got into the show and what happened after. No, feel free. All right. All right. So the show itself was very fun. Uh, the Champions Carnival, it was a kickoff, and so they had everybody stand, and Dory read the proclamation, and then Joe Doring, who was coming back from cancer treatment, started a brawl, as he is the, the big Gaijin mar- monster. So um, really just a fun show. Uh, they built well. You had the non-tournament matches built into a couple of pre-intermission matches, and then after the intermission, everything got ratcheted up a notch. Uh, Kai and Zeus had a great match. Jake Lee, who came back a couple of years ago and has been teaming with Kento uh, Miyahara as next next stream, like there they faced off against each other, had a tremendous match, the best match I saw on the card. Joe Doring and uh, Daisuke Sakamoto, who won it in 2016, had a great sprint and uh, and it helped kind of establish that this might be a tournament that's Joe's to lose. And then the main event was uh, was really interesting. It was it was Suwama, who's been the ace for all Japan for almost a decade now, facing the old deathmatch guy Suji Ishikawa, who I didn't know uh, was going to be a part of the tournament until that day. Um, and that was what you would think it is: a bunch of lumpy dudes hitting the hell out of each other. There was a shoot headbutt by Suwama, which didn't really sit well with me because of what happened with Katsuyori Shibata like earlier that week. So um, that was a part of the finish and he did draw blood and all that stuff. So yeah, I don't, uh, you know, that kind of took away from what was a hot stretch for me personally, but it was still very, very engaging. Um, and then afterwards I went to, uh, to Dukan, which is, if people don't know, it's kind of the big wrestling uh, merch store in Tokyo. And so it's by the, um, the sweet Obashi station, exit and it's on the fifth floor of this building and there's actually a video of of colt cabana and chris hero going to this store and kind of looking around at all the merch and it's a lot of signed memorabilia signed posters Uh, i picked out a couple of shirts um my favorites for sure 
picked out a couple for Eric Rich, who's my commentary buddy and who writes for Segunda Caída. I'm not going to say what they are because I haven't given them to you yet. I don't want to spoil them. But I found a G1 Climax 25 shirt. I found a signed Blue Panther shirt, which was insane. I couldn't believe that. And then I found, which blew my mind even more than the Blue Panther shirt, because at least I knew Blue Panther worked Mexico. I found a sweet and sour Larry Sweeney ROH shirt, and it was just like I had to buy it. As you know, finding shirts an extra large in Japan. Uh, if I had gone there before my weight loss, I I would not have been able to find a single shirt my size. Like it would it would have been bad. Uh, but then when I went to the uh, checkout. Um, a couple of people behind the counter were, you know, boxing things up for merch and, and stuff like that. But before I left, um, one of the guys came over and handed me a gift box, and it was an All Japan wallet, leather wallet, and an All Japan leather keychain. And so that was a really cool kind of send off. It's like, oh, you know, it, it was really neat. I, you know, I bought a bunch of stuff, and they still gave me some more. So that was a really neat little thing I got there. And then finally, I was like, you know what? You got to go to Ribera. And so uh, I went to Ribera, uh, and it was uh, – there's two – so there's two of them. Uh, there's the old one that – you know, that's the one that, you know, Bruiser Brody found, which was uh, in uh, – and that's in Gotanda. Um, that's the older one. I went to the one in Maguro because it was open a little earlier, and I still need to get to a dinner uh, later that evening. So I wanted to make sure I could leave there in plenty of time. And so uh, I went to Maguro. I waited about five minutes outside and uh, went inside, got, you know, seated, had a Kieran, had the steak, the, the eight ounce, you know, the big steak with rice and corn on the side, had the awesome steak sauce. Uh, saw the pictures that everybody knows about now, just of all the, the foreign wrestlers that have come in and taken photos, not just foreign, but domestic wrestlers there too. I'm pretty sure... As I look through the pictures, I'm pretty sure I saw Masakatsu Funaki eating. I'm pretty sure it was him. I'm not 100% sure it was him, but it looked like him. And I was like, I didn't have time to really like be like, yo, is that Masakatsu Funaki? And, and, you know, and also that would be just a terrible mark thing to do. Um, so... Uh, I got in. I had my. It was great. Grilled flat iron New York steak. Uh, their awesome steak sauce they had. I did not get a satin jacket. I'm not one of the boys, so uh, I couldn't. I couldn't grab one. But it was neat. It was a really cool experience, and uh, I really enjoyed myself. That you know to have that type of day to go see you know the dome and to go see the Budokan and go see Sumo Hall, go to a show at Karakin, go to Tudukan, go to Ribera. That's a day. That's a great day. Um, to think that I did that in one day is insane. To think I saw Kawada. I mean, there's more wrestling things I can do. I can go to the January 4th show. I can go to a G1 Climax show. Uh, but, you know, that's pretty good. If you're looking for something to do wrestling related in Japan, that's a hell of a hell of a run right there. Yeah, I was gonna say that'd be hard to that'd be hard to top. It's like yeah, yeah, you could go to like you know you could go to Golden Week and go to like a show every day and you know see right. the but yeah, but to see like all stuff in one day and to actually get to meet people, you know, because yeah. it's one thing to go to a show, it's another thing to actually have interaction with somebody. And if it's like 
you know, your all-time favorite worker you get to meet. Right. You know, I mean, I was like that when I worked for when I worked for MCW and they ran a spot show actually up where I live instead of being in Baltimore. And it just had to be a show because he was driving home from Stanford because it was when he still worked there, like because he was friends with the guys like Cornette stopped and like worked the show. And I was like, right. yeah, when are you going to be able to meet Cornette? It's like, this is your chance. Although you it's know? funny that I ended up like when I did the when I did the, the Mid-South like convention thing, it's like. My table was like right across the aisle from his. So like I got to like he and I talked to him a couple of different times. You know, and like hear him tell stories. But yeah, it's like the first time I got to meet him it was just like you know, I don't want to you know, I'm a huge mar you know, especially cuz this was, you know, like 98. So Right. You know, it it wasn't like he, you know, he's sort of everywhere now. You know, but like then I guess he was still in the office for Vince. I don't think he'd even moved back to start OVW yet. Right. So, so it was really cool. And I, you know, I wanted to say, you know, uh, you know, in 1984, you know, I, was, <laughs> I was a fat in 1984. I like, I started watching wrestling and I was like a fat kid that wore glasses and played tennis. And it was like, who else is going to be like my number one person in like the right. business than the guy that like could be me. Right. You know? So, yeah, but yeah, that's, I mean, certainly get to be. That's too cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like you almost did it. Like like you said, there's a million things to do, but it's like, you know, like for me, like off the top of my head, you know, that's almost all the stuff I w- like. I would want to see the Giants play because the Giants are my right. team. But yeah. you know, again, if I got to go to a game there, that would be cool. And again, the other nerdy thing that like I had planned to do if I had gone was like I wanted to go out and take like the Studio Ghibli tour, which right. I don't even I, I don't even know if they do anymore. So they do, and that was something I tried to do, but you have to get tickets way in advance. Yeah. like you have to get them incredibly far in advance. So um, that's that is something that I looked into, but I didn't realize it took that long to try and get tickets for. And so I think if I do go back. Uh, as soon as I get my plane tickets, and that's going to be months in advance, I'll get my Studio Ghibli tickets far in advance as well. Cool. So, so yeah, that just sounds like such an amazing, amazing couple weeks. Yeah, and you know, I did not, I did some, I didn't get a chance to see everything I wanted to. I mean, obviously, the big thing about me being a baseball guy, I, I wanted to see, you know, Shohei Otani. And, of course, he had the heel injury that stopped him from pitching. And then literally while I was in Korea, he pulled his hammy. And so he's going to be out for a couple of weeks. So I wouldn't have gotten a chance to see him anyway. Uh, but I did get a, a jersey. I did get a Nippon Ham Fighters hat. I got uh, a Nakashima towel. Couldn't find a jersey, but I did get a Nakashima towel. Um, and so there was, there, that part of it was good. I couldn't see the Giants. They were on the road. So unfortunately, like I didn't get a chance to see the Giants in the Tokyo Dome or get to see Otani play, but I still got a chance to to do a lot of cool baseball stuff regardless. So I think those are the two big things I missed. And the, I'd like to you know see the other parts of Japan, go up to Hokkaido, go to Kyoto, or go to Osaka. But you you need to really set some time across your side for that because even by bullet train, it's a few hours either way uh, to get down there. And so you'd have to really kind of put yourself uh 
you know, in a position where you're going to spend a couple hundred bucks to get on the train and then also say, oh, I'm going to spend a day here, two days here, what have you. Cool. Uh, the other thing I figured we would talk about is is your career with the Stompers. For people who mm-hmm. don't know, they're a minor league independent team, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, and it's funny because I was reading some of the stuff, and it's funny how, like, many different sort of quirky things the Stompers mm-hmm. have done in the in the past couple years. I mean, I don't right. know. I don't know if it's completely analogous, but, like, reading the list, it reminded me of, like, the stuff that the St. Paul Saints used to do when Mike Vec ran them. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how much of it is – I don't want to say gimmicky in a bad way, but, you know, doing doing things to get the spotlight on yourself, which I think is what you probably have to do when you're a minor league team, especially, you know, when you're in, you know, a fairly, you know, big area where there's so much other competition, you know, from like the big cities. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so why don't you just talk, talk about the, like, how you ended up working for them and like some of the stuff that. Like I know you were there when the when the two ladies joined the team. Mm-hmm. So just so yeah. just why don't you just talk about the Stompers a little? Yeah, so I'm from Sonoma, California. That's where I've been born and raised. I live there now, uh, and I spent a couple of years back in 2009, 2010 in Florida working for the Dunedin Blue Jays. I went to the job fair for the baseball winter meetings in 08, ran into a friend there. He said, hey, there's a, a communications job. You should get the job, you know, look into it. And I did, and I got the job and went and worked as the media relations and a broadcaster uh, for Dunedin, which is in the Florida State League in Florida. But I also got a chance to work their spring training for the Toronto Blue Jays. And so uh, that was really cool as a PA announcer and an MC there. Uh, really fun, really cool uh, as a young guy trying to break into broadcasting, there was very few jobs I would have taken other than that. Um, but, you know, those jobs, they can go in the blink of an eye, and that one did. And so I never thought I was going to work in baseball again. I decided to go back to school in 2014 after I kind of stalled out doing the media stuff. And so I had my summers available, and when I heard this team was starting up, uh, I got a call from somebody. He said, hey, I put your name in as a broadcaster. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And uh, I was the guy they hired. And then later that summer, uh, the Effectively Wild podcast by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, they were talking about how they'd never been to an independent baseball game before. And, uh, yeah, I reached out to them because my friend was like, you need to listen to this episode. And I was like, okay, I did that. I'd gotten behind during, during working for a baseball team, which was crazy. And so that was kind of the chain reaction that started what happened with the Stompers. So I reached out to them. Sam wrote a brilliant article on us for Baseball Prospectus on Labor Day of 2014. I got a lot of page views. Like it, for them, it was a popular article, but it also got the wheels turning on ideas that Sam and Ben had about trying to do some sabermetric things that hadn't really been done before, and they wanted a place to do it. And so they reached out to the Stompers about a book deal. They agreed. And so that began 2015, where we had Sean Conroy uh, as one of the spreadsheet guys that they signed. And he also ended up being uh, gay. And so he came out as the openly gay first ever professional uh, baseball player who was openly gay. And uh, that became a big international story for us, got us into the Hall of Fame. And so 
you know, one of the things that we have done, you know, you talked about like the St. Paul Saints is we've done things organically. We haven't really tried to go out and 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 make things happen from a gimmicky perspective. You know, when the women started up with us, the two women players, Stacey Piagno and Kelsey Whitmore in July of last year, that was because of this is going to be totally like right in the freaking wheelhouse for this podcast. Francis Ford Coppola owns a winery north of Sonoma. By, it's about an hour north of us. And he was starting up a new venture called Virginia Dare. And he was like, you know what? I played baseball going up with my aunts, you know, and they were always really good. And he was like, I want to see what some of the best women players would do. And I want the Stompers to help kind of facilitate that. And so we did. We Stacy is one of the best pitchers on the U.S. Women's National Team, Kelsey was just finishing up high school and was a future star uh, for the women's national team. Uh, some people really liked her, and, and so they joined us on July 1st, and we got as much if not more recognition on that day than we did for Sean's night uh, last year, and it really turned into this thing where the Stompers kind of became known as the progressive team, and it was you know the woke team, so to speak. And so... You know, to build upon that, I go to grad school, and so I can't do the day-to-day stuff anymore. And in my place is Jen Mock Ramos, who, uh, for people who don't know, write, wrote for Purple Row at SB Nation and Beyond the Box Score and things like that, uh, is uh, non-binary, gender. Uh, she she born female, but they uh, don't conform to any of the gender norms. And so Think Progress did a story on on, on Jen joining the team. The, the 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 idea of the stompers being more inviting to to not just the, the typical baseball player you know we've really cultivated a very unique atmosphere we're very small from a, an association standpoint but at the same time we've made a big impact in the world of baseball in a lot of ways jen was just at the trailblazer series that was down in los angeles last weekend that uh, that got rave reviews from mlb so I'm I'm just happy to be a part of it. It happened in my hometown. It was just the right time. Uh, I, it was part of a book. I was part of you know two bits of pe- you know things that I have now that are in the Hall of Fame. I have my scorecards as part of those nights that I signed off on. Those are in the Hall of Fame. It's just uh, it's a sur- it was just surreal. And I'm on a, you know still on as a consultant, and I'll be there to help out if I can be, but. You know, to be there from the start and help cultivate this this entity that has really grown into something that has become such a a big part of my life and and really a positive influence in baseball culture, I couldn't be prouder of, and uh, I'm really really happy to have seen it succeed these last three years. Do you think like the team's success with this these sort of progressive things does it help that you're in the Bay Area where things are? more accepting of like could you have done these similar type things if you were in you know like southwest texas or mississippi you know what i mean is right it does being where you are help i think it does i mean i i what was what's interesting to me though and this is this is where i think I've, i've kind of struggled with this personally trying to figure out like if it would work elsewhere is so let's say that Sean d- 
did go to the can not the Can Am League. Let's say let's say he went to uh, the American Association and he was playing for Des Moines. Like he's or he's out there, you know, in Iowa. From a perspective of business, I think reaching out and making that a part of your team that seems like the natural business inclination. However, it's not built into the culture probably as much as you said, like in the Midwest or, or South Texas, wherever you want to say it. Whereas here in the Bay Area, we have our um, our LGBTQ night, our Pride night, the same weekend as the biggest Pride festival in the United States, right? So it's like we have that backing. We have that, uh, that really interesting uh, – really cool bit of 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 uh, culture of society that naturally just wants to be a part of, of of something like this and so i think you're right i think in a more metropolitan area which sonoma is only about an hour outside of san francisco yes without a doubt uh, that being said i think you're starting to see now and i think it'll be commonplace probably in the next decade or so that something like happened with sean something that's happening right now with jen I think that can happen anywhere, and I, and I think that that type of progress isn't going to be limited to just more liberally uh, cultural areas. Because I'm wondering, because like every day when I go to work, I drive by the Iron Bird Stadium in Aberdeen, the team that right. Cal, that Cal Ripken owns. Right. And you know, and you know, they're called the Iron Birds because they're like named after an air, you know, they're named after a fighter jet kind of thing, and we're you know, right out, you know, Aberdeen Proving Ground is right there and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I was just thinking, like, what would happen if some of these things happened to, like, like if they did that? And I'm just, you know, I was just like, I don't know how well, it, I, you know, I'd like to think, you know, it would be successful. Probably not as successful, but, you know, I, it, it makes me wonder. But, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to say, and that's kind of one of the things that, I think I just was just happy that, that it happened. I think that for me, I've really tried to, as someone as someone who's, who kind of grew up in this area where this type of stuff really was, you know, embraced. Like a, a lot of hippie culture in Sonoma County, especially in the west side of, of the county, we're not so much. We're very much divided as far as there is a conservative area, there is a more liberal area, but overall, we're still very liberal. We're one of the most liberal counties in, in the United in the United States. Um, it's, I think, it's just kind of one of those places where, as far as progressive values or what you want to say go, it's just it's just ripe for it. Like that type of stuff is is all around us. We're trying to always be at the forefront of that type of stuff, but. I have a feeling now, you know, current environment, which is it's just it's just crazy to think about this now. But I have a feeling now that other areas might be open to it, just because it would be a positive step in one direction or the other. And so I, I have a feeling that more and more as time goes on, I, I would hope that it, it would be better off. Uh, I don't know if they would be able to be done like how we did it. But there will be, like you said, probably not as good as a place like Aberdeen or some of the other areas, uh, even though they're kind of closer to metropolitan areas. Uh, I just I don't see it. I, I think like as far as the, the, you know, the success we had, 
that is that is very unique. That's something that was very organic. You couldn't manufacture that, and it just happened. That's something you just really can prepare for. So. And speaking of of counterculture, the Stompers once had Bill Spaceman Lee play for a game. Yes, yes, so we did what, in 2014. So what was that? What was dealing with Bill Lee like? So Bill Lee has always been the vagabond baseball player. Uh, I still haven't seen his movie with Josh Duhamel playing him, which I I I would just imagine is great. But so there's some really cool things with 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 him uh first off he loves coming out to the bay area well obviously his nature is a progressive guy you know the, the, you know he loves it out here especially marine county and so um he originally played for the san rafael pacifics who are uh, uh our you know our rivals uh in in the pacific association and he actually played for both them and us because our first year in existence the same ownership group trying to build up the league actually ran the stompers and so bill came up to play with us and he immediately became kind of drawn to to Sonoma. he loved it up here he loved the nature he loved kind of our vibe as a clubhouse and just talking with him he is a savant he knows so much about the game he is so far out there with how he sees things uh in a way that you just like wind him up and let him go there was this really cool time where he was in town he doesn't carry a cell phone but he came into the Stomper's office to use the phone because he needed to. And that turned into like an hour visit where his wife was off doing an errand. And, but she knew he could, you know, she could come back and pick Bill up whenever she needed to. Uh, but he came in and he was talking about how he had gone to Cuba because Theo Master, the general manager, his family had just gone to Cuba. And they were there at the same time, and so he was wondering if there was a chance that they had gone and, and met each other or been in the same area. And that just turned in this incredible time, you know, time frame of who he met, what he knew about the Cuban players he played with, and I just enjoyed talking with him. I got a chance to have an interview with him for four minutes. It was a very – your usual normal four-minute post-game interview that a media guy would have with a player – uh, but he was just delightful. He he really understood uh, the the game of baseball and its effect in a way that you just you can't duplicate. And uh, I remember soon after I saw him again, he did his interview with Jonah Carey on his podcast, and uh, it was really neat. Jonah had the same problem we did in the sense that once Bill started talking, it was hard to get a word in. He just wanted to go on and talk, and you could basically just like uh, – like Cornette, you let Cornette talk, he's going to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, but uh, I will say this, uh, Bill Lee is one of my favorite people I've ever met in baseball, and I have nothing but respect for him. And the idea of him being counterculture, I think he's actually more central to baseball than most people think. Uh, you know, And his time in Montreal was, uh, was very interesting. People should look into that. Uh, it's it's very fun, very fun times, and uh, man, he he knows certain things. He can pinpoint pitches. He pitched to hitters back in you know his day. Forty years later, he's he's just incredible, just an absolute gem when it comes to baseball. Cool. Well, Tim, I want to thank you very much for doing the show. Yeah. Um, has the stopper season started yet? 
No, uh, Stompers start up in about two months, end of May. Uh, in fact, let me uh, pull up the old calendar here. Um, the home games for the Stompers begin on June the 13th. That's when they're going to be doing uh, the uh, the uh, the giveaway night uh, for for the opening night, and also with the uh, uh, the presentation of the rings from last year's championship team, but the games begin on June 2nd. So, uh, they'll be in Pittsburgh and then Vallejo and then San Rafael, and then they'll come back to host Vallejo. So, uh, two weeks on the road to start, and then they'll come back to Sonoma. So we're about six weeks away from baseball here in uh, beautiful Sonoma, and it'll be a, a fun summer for sure. And are you still doing the wrestling play-by-play? I am. So I'm with Phoenix Pro Wrestling. We just had a great show in April uh, that, uh, or in March, pardon me, that was a tremendous uh, show. It's on YouTube. Just search for PPW Petaluma. And that's also the, the Twitter handle and the Instagram handle. Uh, the great cage match between J.R. Kratos, who's been a, a, you know, a Northern California stalwart for many years, and Drake Frost, who's really started to come into his own as a, a big bruiser type. And so... Uh, if you go back through our archives, Jeff Cobb was there at the beginning when he was his, really starting to see his uh, star kind of brighten up a little bit, which was really neat. Uh, but, yeah, PPW Petaluma on YouTube and uh, and Twitter and Instagram. Cool. Uh, do you have anything else you want to you wanna mention before we go? Yeah, so I'm going to be working on a story along what you heard today, a little bit more detail on my trip to Japan uh, for the place to be nation that's going to be coming out. Uh, I'm hoping by the end of the week, I got to finish this article up. It's going to be a long form piece about 6,000 words or so has some pictures in it from my trip. Uh, it's going to be wrestling centric. There won't really be a lot of the pop culture stuff, but if you want to see kind of get more detail about the wrestling stuff, it will be in there. Uh, but, uh, that's the big thing. And then of course, if you do want to follow me on social media, I'm at Mr. Tim Livingston on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook as well, but, uh, that's where I hang out mostly is on the Twitter and in the, uh, the Instagram. So cool. I will, I will add the link to that once it goes live. I'll put that in the show notes. Yes. I will let you know when it goes live. I'm hoping to have it done here in the next couple of days and, uh, it'll be fun from there. Cool. Tim, thanks again for doing the show. People can look out for that. And we will talk to everybody next time.